This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. It's harder to focus than ever these days. Thankfully, C4 has reinvented the energy drink game with C4 Smart Energy, the only energy drink clinically proven to provide enhanced mental focus, containing 200 milligram of natural caffeine, a blend of vitamins and zero sugar. It was formulated to support your well-being and help you feel your best, all while enhancing mental focus. From your brain to your body, C4 Smart Energy does it all and tastes amazing. Look for Smart Energy in the beverage aisle at your local Kroger, Albertsons, and Safeway grocery stores. C4 Smart Energy. Stay focused. You're listening to the CBS Sunday Morning Podcast on Play.it, brought to you by the new film Trumbo. Good morning and Happy New Year. I'm Charles Osgood and this is Sunday Morning. For many of us, the new year means the earnest making of resolutions designed to turn our lives around. However, to succeed at that goal requires that we have to think about it a lot. Our cover story this morning will be reported by Mo Rocca. If you've blown your New Year's resolution already, we have a suggestion for you. Try meditation. True or false, meditation can help you lose weight. True. It can help you lower blood pressure. Absolutely true. It helps you sleep better. True. Head on Sunday morning, the power of a quiet mind. Kate Winslet is an A-list actress with a long list of credits, including, it turns out, hair and makeup artist. This morning, she'll be answering questions from our Jim Axelrod. It's not just her beauty that's put Kate Winslet on the red carpet. It's also her capacity to transform. What happens when they find out that for $24.95, there's nothing you can do with it? Kate Winslet does it her way, whether the topic is bullying, equal pay, or her appearance. Today, I did my own hair and makeup because it's easier, frankly, sometimes. Later on Sunday morning, Kate Winslet... This is like a farming program, isn't it? ...as you've never seen her before. This is what I mean when I talk about priorities in life. <laughs> Several small Japanese islands are in contention for the title of Cat's Meow. And with Seth Doan this morning, we'll be going ashore on one of them. Cat lovers may have dreamed of a place like this. Those with allergies, oh. <laughs> maybe not. You've been to three cat islands and you've been to 
two cat islands? Here, felines outnumber humans 10 to 1. Come along to one of Japan's cat islands later on Sunday morning. Lily Tomlin has been making people laugh for many years. And in her most recent movie, she does just that and much, much more. Lee Cowan will have our Sunday profile. One ring-a-ding-ding, two ring-a-ding-ding. With just one line, Lily Tomlin can say so much. And that's the truth. <laughs> and in her latest role, she finally gets top billing. Some people should not grow beards. Your face looks like an armpit. Did you want to be a leading woman? No, but I like to have movies written for me. <laughs> <laughs> so I finally achieved one. The timeless talents of Lily Tomlin. <laughs> Later on Sunday morning. Martha Teichner plums the mysteries behind the sinking of the Lusitania. Anna Werner tours some of Chicago's greatest architectural treasures. Steve Hartman has a new chapter in his tale of the ugly Christmas tree and more ahead. But chickens are great and they give you eggs. Actress Kate Winslet. But first, the search for self in the new year. Based on the true story. Trumbo, you're the highest paid writer in Hollywood. In 1947, he was blacklisted for his beliefs. Hollywood is just a haven for overpaid traders. So he rewrote the rules. We do the one thing everyone says we can't. We write. Trumbo is one of the year's must-see pictures. Brian Cranston Towers. Are you prepared to go to prison? Helen Mirren is terrific. Whisper a movie you've written in secret. Maybe I've even heard of it. Maybe you have. Trumbo, rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Only in theaters this November. Everywhere. Thanksgiving. Think about it. Whether it's improving our day-to-day -day lives or surviving sudden calamity, there's no substitute for clear-headed mental discipline. And a growing number of people think they know how to find that. Our cover story is reported by Moraka. By the time we hit the ground, and we hit the ground pretty heavily, the plane spun around and twisted, and we were thrown, <clears throat> thrown about. There was a great deal of chaos immediately inside the plane. And the cabin was filled with smoke. Yeah, the smoke was now coming up the aisle very quickly. Thick, black, jet fuel smoke. Thick and noxious. Um, and Susanna said to me almost right away, I'll never make it. I'm choking already. Alan Locos and his wife Susanna were on vacation when their plane crash-landed in the Southeast Asian nation of Myanmar on Christmas Day, 2012. Alan managed to get his wife out of the plane, but when it was his turn to escape... I caught my foot on something, and I was stuck there. So in a nutshell, I was now standing in fire. Even though he was engulfed in flames, Locos didn't panic. Do you think that came from meditation? Oh, absolutely. You're in fire, so it's a frightening situation. But there was also a sense of calm with that. Lokos, a practicing Buddhist and experienced meditator, made it out. But with burns covering 33% of his body, survival was a long shot. Every doctor who saw me, they all said the same thing. You, you can't survive these injuries. But Lokos did recover. And he says his ability to remain calm, cultivated from meditating seven times a day for 20 years, is a big part of why he survived a fiery plane crash. Can you speculate on how things would have gone at that moment had you not been calm? I would be pretty certain that I would have died in the plane. The person right behind me did. It may seem like a stretch that years of meditation, the act of focused, quiet thought, made the difference between life and death in a devastating plane crash. But it's a proposition that's being taken more seriously than ever before. Dr. John Denninger is director of research at the Benson Henry Institute for Mind-Body Medicine in Boston, Massachusetts. I have no doubt that that kind of mental training would enable you to 
essentially put aside the fact that your body is basically yelling emergency, 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 and enabling you to attain a certain calmness in the face of that that would allow you to take action. While these people might look like they're in a passive state, their brains are very much active. And meditation, Denninger says, has benefits way beyond staying calm. True or false, meditation can help you lose weight. True. It can help you lower blood pressure. Absolutely true. Meditation helps with irritable bowel syndrome. True. It helps you sleep better. True. It can help you quit smoking. True. Studies have shown that it may have an impact on the cellular level too, slowing the effects of aging and increasing neuroplasticity, which is the ability of the brain to grow new brain cells and develop new connections. And they thought that once you were an adult, neuroplasticity was gone. That has clearly been shown not to be the case. And one of the clear findings is that meditation uh, has the ability to actually make certain brain regions thicker. And that means that there is a growth of, of brain cells. It's a long way from when meditation was seen as strictly alternative medicine. And in this country, we're safely out of the woo-woo zone in terms well, of its perception? I think not entirely safely out of the woo-woo zone. I mean, we're out of the woo-woo zone in terms of what the science says. In terms of what people believe, I think there are plenty of people out there who still are like, they hear the word meditation and they poo-poo it. About 18 million Americans meditate. I'm meditating uh, 37 years. Been using it for uh, almost 40 years. Including some very bold-faced names. I started meditation on July 1st, 1973, on a sunny Saturday morning at 11 o'clock. One of them is director David Lynch. You remember not just the date, you remember what the day was like. I remember it as if it was yesterday, and it was so beautiful. I've been meditating twice a day for over 41 years and never missed a meditation. It might come as a surprise to learn that Lynch, <laughs> the director of such dark movies as Blue Velvet and Mulholland Drive, calls himself a, quote, bliss ninny. He practices transcendental meditation, also known as TM. So people see things like stress, traumatic stress, tension, anxiety, sorrow, depression, hate, anger, and fear start to lift away. So it's like pure gold coming in from within and garbage going out. For Lynch and its adherents, TM and its repetition of a personalized mantra you will unfold your full potential. can help free the mind from what he calls the rubber clown suit of negativity. It's suffocating, it stinks, it's heavy, and you start meditating with transcendental meditation from a legitimate teacher, and that clown suit will start, start dissolving, and you'll feel so good. And that's more than just talk. In 2005, he began the David Lynch Foundation for Consciousness-Based Education and World Peace. One of its goals? To teach students, like the ones at this school in Los Angeles, how to meditate. Like sometimes in the morning, I don't want to come to school. You don't want to come to school? I don't. That's the way I felt. <laughs> Take the meditation, um, it makes me um, want to come to school. Did anybody here, when you first heard about meditation, think, okay, that sounds kind of weird? I did, honestly. Yeah. Betsy, Marie, you both did? Yeah. So did I. Anna, you did too? I thought it was like, you know, when you cross your legs and you hold your hands. <laughs> yeah. I thought we would have to do that. Twice a day for 15 minutes, these students meditate. After that, it just helps me keep my day going. It just, that's everything that, everything that's bad, like, go away. And I just think of the positive things. It makes me become, like, more... I don't know, like, become more happy within myself and, like, I, like, become, I guess, more patient with others. When I'm in a better mood, my family's in a better mood. I don't argue as much with my sister. But when I get home after I meditate, like, I'm just in a good mood. I feel better about the day. You know, I, nothing bugs me. Principal Jennifer Garcia says her school, like 43 others that have adopted the program, has changed for the better. Kids are calm and they're not taking stuff out on each other. And they're really engaged in wanting to 
be helpful with each other. It's, it's a different place. Allow a sense of ease to come through the body. Alan Locos never expected to get back to this place. He resumed teaching his weekly New York City meditation group only four months after the plane crash that almost killed him, and almost a full year before doctors expected him to be on his feet at all. If it happens to help save your life in a plane crash, that's terrific. Let's hope that that's not how it happens, but I think most of us, if not all of us who do this, see changes in our life every day that are significant. And, and for me, I mean, that's, that's just great. There's no supports inside that whole building. It's all on the outside. A day trip to Chicago is just ahead. Based on the true story. Trumbo, you're the highest paid writer in Hollywood. In 1947, he was blacklisted for his beliefs. Hollywood is just a haven for overpaid traitors. So he rewrote the rules. We do the one thing everyone says we can't. We write. Trumbo is one of the year's must-see pictures. Brian Cranston Towers. Are you prepared to go to prison? Helen Mirren is terrific. Whisper a movie you've written in secret. Maybe I've even heard of it. Maybe you have. Trumbo, rated are under 17 not admitted without parent only in theaters this november everywhere thanksgiving time now to salute one american city's towering achievements we speak of chicago and a skyline that attracts admirers by the boatload with anna werner we join the sightseers if broadway hits the heights and hollywood tops the box office then you might say chicago towers above them all for its architecture. If you go up about 15 stories, there is an outcropping, kind of a shoulder. It's a little larger. It's considered the birthplace of the modern skyscraper, and the city has made architecture one of its main tourist attractions. When it was completed in 1898, it was called the North American Cold Storage Building. On any given day, dozens of architecture tours wind through the city's waterways and streets. This is 1983, and what I like about the building is every pane of glass, the edge of it is pinched in so it bubbles out a little bit. The buildings are considered works of art, and their designers treated like directors are in Hollywood. This is going to look like a thin champagne-stemmed glass. Do architects get more respect in Chicago than they do in other places? I, I think so. We don't have movie stars or the film industry. Um, Got Michael Jordan. Yeah, he's pretty famous too. So athletes and architects. <laughs> Architectural giants like Frank Lloyd Wright, Mies van der Rohe, Helmut Jahn, all contributors to the Chicago cityscape. Jeannie Gang has also made her mark. See that building? The one that looks like waves? That's her design, aptly named Aqua. When I'm like in a taxi or, you know, just coming along and someone points out our building, my building, I'm always taken aback because I think it's ingraining into the collective memory of the city at this point and it's, it's pretty exciting for me. But this incredible skyline was born out of tragedy, the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. The fire decimated the city's wooden structures, leaving an estimated 300 people dead and more than three square miles in ruins. Reconstruction soon followed, a process that would redefine both the city and the country. If you think about the history of New York, it was a Dutch settlement, and Chicago really is the beginning of American city planning. And this year marks another defining note in the city's rich architectural history, the inaugural Chicago Architectural Biennial. They've twisted them. It's a combination of exhibit and think tank devoted entirely to architectural ideas. Sarah Herda is one of its directors. We have over 130 participants from 30 countries on six continents. So we really wanted to create a global platform to talk about what's most urgent in architecture today. One topic on the table, affordable housing. And this was built for how much money? 3,500 US dollars. 
This is bamboo? This is a kind of thatched, yeah, thatched bamboo. Uh -huh. It does have a steel frame. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea is that this house could be constructed within a day and that you would never need more than two people to hold any one piece of the building. Which is incredible. Yes. Other exhibits challenge conventional design, like this reinvented office space. What are we doing here? Well, we climb in here. Uh-huh. And no matter where you are in the, this construction, you're never sitting. Why is this something that's considered architecture? Well, it's absolutely about redefining space. So it's creating a new environment for work to replace the office cubicles you are probably more familiar with. And perhaps the most talked about exhibit is a reimagined police station by Jeannie Gang. The design is intended to help build trust between police and citizens, a topic currently on the minds of many in Chicago. We kind of divided the police station into two parts, a secure area and a more public zone. Mental health services, for example, a nutritionist, a computer lab, and those are things that we felt could reanimate the police station and make it more of a place that people want to come to. The architecture biennial ends this week but it will return in the fall of 2017 to maintain Chicago's tradition of inventive architectural design. There's a kind of dignity that good architecture can bring to everyday life. And I think that the architects in this exhibition are really concerned with just that. Still to come on the road. Tell them we're gonna go to Tijuana for the weekend. <laughs> with Willie Tomlin. But first, Kate Winslet on makeup, money. Fix it, Steve. And the movies. Fix it or I quit. How about that? I quit and you never see me again. How about that? Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. You think a first-class girl can't drink? <laughs> That's Kate Winslet along with Leonardo DiCaprio in the 1997 movie Titanic. She sailed to an Oscar nomination for her performance in that blockbuster. And there's Oscar buzz again this year over her role in the movie Steve Jobs. Here she is with Jim Axelrod. We have things to talk about. Like what? As the fearless aid to Steve Jobs. We're not going to sell a million in the first 90 days. Joanna Hoffman was a lot of things. A high-powered executive, a marketing genius. What happens when they find out that for $24.95 there's nothing you can do with it? I don't care if she put a... And, as played by Kate Winslet... You're going to fix it now. The moral center of the movie, Steve Jobs. But what you make isn't supposed to be the best part of you. When you're a father, that's what's supposed to be the best part of you. And it's However, one thing the real-life Joanna Hoffman, a no-nonsense Polish-Armenian immigrant, would not be confused for is a glamorous movie star. Why would they think of me? Because Joanna Hoffman looks nothing like me. When Kate Winslet heard about this role, she just had to have it. You wanted this badly. Mm-hmm. That's allowed. Isn't that allowed? <laughs> so she took a selfie, this one, and sent it to the film's producer. Joanna didn't really wear any makeup and put on this short, dark-haired wig and a pair of glasses, and I took one photo, and I just sent it by email to Scott Rudin. Any and message? No. No message. After six Academy Award nominations... He did! He loved me as I loved him! <laughs> and the inertia of my life... An iconic star turn in Titanic. And all the while I feel I'm standing in the middle of a crowded room, screaming at the top of my lungs, and no one even looks up. We were gods. Our job was to guard the prisoners. And an Oscar win know. for the reader. Well then. We couldn't just let them escape. We couldn't. We were responsible for them. Kate Winslet could expect to get any part she wants. But getting Joanna Hoffman was one thing, playing her, quite another. How hard was that accent? Oh, 
That accent. There are lots of accents I really can't do. I do a useless Scottish. My Irish is all over the map. But Polish-Armenian, you Polish got nailed? Polish-Armenian, you know, <laughs> give a girl a challenge. Fix it. Fix it now. Or you can contact me at my new job, working anywhere I want. I mean, I was baffled by it. And I remember I called the real Joanna and to hear her actually speak, it is different to the way that I ended up doing it in the film for, for the simple reason that her pitch is much higher than mine. So I remember speaking to her for the first time and I said, hello, Joanna, um, this is Kate Winslet. Hello, how are you? I'm so happy to hear from you. Well, this is just so exciting. I thought, oh my God, I can't, there is no, I can't do that. I can't sustain that for two hours of a movie. You know. Winslet's been relying on her acting instincts for 25 years, starting on TV in a British show called Dark Season. It is weird. She was a chunky 15-year-old, and even being on TV did not insulate her from the slings and arrows of schoolyard bullies. But then, as someone once said, never listen to what people tell you, only what you tell yourself. I was teased for how I looked. That's what the bullying was? Yeah, because I was quite stocky as a, little, as a child um, and was very much teased for that. Now 40, and one of her generation's brightest stars, the pain is still fuel. I know that those nasty bullies are still out there. And there I am with a big gold statue in my hand. I mean, that's a pretty great fist pumping moment. That's a lovely message to say to those bullies, you know, and where are they? Where are they? It's not just a fist pumping moment. It's a little bit of a middle finger moment. Well, um, let's not get aggressive. It's about a presence, a radiance. That but even when you're the face of Lancome Cosmetics, there's not enough makeup to cover the scars of teenage teasing. She speaks loudly and clearly about body image, often insisting that her image not be retouched. I am in, a, in an industry where I, I have to do interviews much like this one. You know, we walk down red carpets, you know, it's part of the job. But I think I feel very strongly that it's important to also say to young girls that we don't, we don't look like that all the time. By the way, you sat down with us. Um, you can hold that up there for the... The coffee? No. Oh, this, okay. Right, so I sat down with you because today I did my own hair and makeup because it's easier, frankly, sometimes. And I came into this room and I said, okay, I am the hair and makeup team, so someone tell me if I'm shiny. Blunt as she is about gender and beauty, Winslet seemed to struggle a few months ago after Jennifer Lawrence shined a spotlight on the issue of pay equity for actors and actresses. Winslet was asked about it by the BBC. I don't like talking about money. It's a bit vulgar, isn't it? I don't think that's very nice conversation to have publicly. That reaction caused a bit of a stir. So this notion of, I don't want to discuss any gap in pay, gender gaps, mm. it's vulgar. Yeah, let me explain. So what I think is vulgar is to be talking publicly about actual earning of money. That is, I mean, even as I'm saying it now, I'm slightly being sick into my mouth. I'm British. We don't do that. Jennifer put it brilliantly. She did it so gracefully and graciously. Um, but what I object to is unfortunately the line of questioning that it almost gives journalists permission to open with, which I don't like. I fully had a journalist say to me, so do you know if you got paid more or less than Michael Fassbender? I don't ever want to be asked that question, and I certainly wouldn't answer it. That's what's difficult. Would it make you feel better if I told you that if I am ever in a situation where I feel that there is something unfair happening, that I always stand up for myself? Would that make you feel better? <laughs> Not about what makes me feel better. I'm just wondering if you think... I just want to try and answer your question <laughs> well, in as delicate a way as I can. I'm just wondering if, in, in theory, is it wrong if there is... A gap. It's very difficult to answer that question because every situation is completely different. But if you have a man and a woman in a movie of equal experience, of equal sized role, who are saying the same number of lines, is it wrong that the guy gets paid more than the girl? You bet your bottom dollar it's wrong. I mean, do you think a school teacher, a female school teacher, wants to sit at home and listen to a Hollywood, you know, a bunch of Hollywood actresses talking about how they don't get basically paid enough? Winslet's pay grade allows her to live quite comfortably with her third husband and three kids in a small town on the English coast. But chickens are great and they give you eggs. Hollywood A-lister, perhaps. This one in here 
but one who finds one of life's great pleasures in a country henhouse. You're in luck. Look, this means that the little bantams, the little black ones, have started laying. This is really great, actually. I must tell you, this is exciting. Well done, everybody. For Winslet, happiness is running to the store with no worries about dodging paparazzi. You have to have a home and somewhere to, you know, run and hide. And also, we're very fortunate. It's a lovely community where we live. And so, um, so yeah, we're just, you know, we're just part of the community. You can run and get a quart of milk and not have to worry about anything not, other not than getting a, the milk. Not a problem. I even do the school run in my dressing gown, bathrobe, <laughs> pajamas. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. At this point, yeah. it seems Kate Winslet doesn't want to live a second more of her life than she has to, worried about appearances. Unless, of course, she's changing them herself to snag a role that just might put her in the running for her next Oscar. Ahoy! An island of cats lies just ahead. Based on the true story. Trumbo, you're the highest paid writer in Hollywood. In 1947, he was blacklisted for his beliefs. Hollywood is just a haven for overpaid traders. So he rewrote the rules. We do the one thing everyone says we can't. We write. Trumbo is one of the year's must-see pictures. Brian Cranston Towers. Are you prepared to go to prison? Helen Mirren is terrific. Whisper a movie you've written in secret. Maybe I've even heard of it. Maybe you have. Trumbo, rated are under 17 not admitted without parent only in theaters this november everywhere thanksgiving talk about the cat's meow our friend loft here is a professional cat does a beautiful job of it too don't you think but when his working days are over he may want to consider a relaxing retirement on the island that seth doan is about to visit watch this loft We were headed to an island labeled Aoshima on the map, but it's better known by its nickname, Cat Island. You can actually see the cats coming down to meet the boat here as we approach. Here, cats outnumber humans more than 10 to 1. This tiny fishing village once had a population of 800 people, but the sardine fisheries depleted, jobs moved to cities, and human residents left the island. Now there are just 16 people here and more than 160 cats. It's an adjustment for visiting reporters. <laughs> <laughs> Misato Kamioka is not exactly the official historian, but she's lived here for nearly 40 years. How did this become an island of cats? There used to be a lot of mice and not many cats, she remembered. Some cats were let loose, others were abandoned. And the rest, as they say, is history. I suspect you've got your mice population under control now. No mice problem, she said. There's a sort of predictable rhythm on Cat Island. A neighborly dispute or two, some eating, some sleeping, and some more eating. The big moment of the day is when the tourist boat shows up. It's 45 minutes of bliss for all involved. We asked school lunch lady Hitomi Goto why the Japanese love cats so much. Cats do as they please, but we can't do that, she said, referring to her regimented life. Cats go where they want and snooze when they feel like it. So leaving my work to see them is very relaxing. This was another cat island. We were shown pictures of other cat islands. You've been to three cat islands and you've been to two cat islands? Yep, there are about 10 across the country. In Japan, cats are featured on TV shows. And of course, this is the land where Hello Kitty was born. We'd heard about another must-see stop for the cat crazed in Japan, and we went to meet the cat station master. 
Tama II and predecessor Tama are credited with saving this rail station with a cat-like look in rural western Japan. Ridership had shrunk and the train line was in the red until a railway boss, quote, looked into the eyes of a cat at a local concession stand and decided to make it the station master. It's an honorary title. The only work involved is looking cute and attracting tourists, but it's worked. Back on Cat Island, these felines have left their mark. On the jetty, it's not beer cans, but cans of tuna scattered about. Even the humans can be seen sneaking a catnap. We'd met Ruji Hidaka on the ferry. He'd come alone, but then connected with a fellow cat lover. He told us this was paradise and said he'd like to return. It's not enough to just see it once? No, it's not enough, he replied. I would like to live here. I smiled and tried to withhold judgment. This place is not everyone's definition of paradise. As the afternoon ferry pulled out, people waved to the cats, though it seemed a rather one-sided goodbye. Japan has a rabbit island too, but we'll save that for another story. Next. I think Charlie Brown's got a better tree than, than we do. <laughs> a new chapter for the ugly Christmas tree. That decrepit Christmas tree that famously won a reprieve the year before last lives on, in a manner of speaking. Steve Hartman has the story. We have returned to Reading, Pennsylvania to investigate reports that the world's ugliest Christmas tree has been somehow immortalized. You may remember back in 2014, the sorry excuse for a conifer was all the rage. And I do mean rage. I think Charlie Brown's got a better tree than, than we do. <laughs> Everybody that took part of bringing this tree here should get fired. <laughs> the tree was so ugly, the city decided to take it down before Christmas, just so people wouldn't have to look at it anymore. Workers removed the lights and the pretzel of Bethlehem, or whatever that was. The pretzel is off. And made arrangements to bring in a new spruced up spruce. A Christmas tree is a matter of celebration. Former city councilman Francis Acosta told me this really was like that tree in the Charlie Brown story. Although the lesson had obviously eluded him. What was the moral of that story? Well, the importance of Christmas, of being together. And what did and they that. do with the tree at the end? Save it. Uh, embrace it. Uh-huh. But it's not about Charlie Brown or not Charlie Brown tree. It's about a beautiful Christmas tree for the city. They really were going to get rid of it until the phones started ringing off the hook at City Hall. Public opinion changed. The mayor is calling. And the mayor issued a stay of re-execution, if you will. We will keep this thing here. And that was the end of the story. Or so I thought. I said, you know, we're saving this tree and we're going to do something with it. And we kind of kept it under wraps. Luke Schultz was on the crew that was supposed to mulch the tree after the holidays. But he didn't. I thought there's just no way that we could run this tree through a chipper after everything's said and done. I mean, it's just, we can't let that happen. So, with the help of some local Votech students, Luke turned that paltry pine into a piece of art, a bench as quirky as the tree it came from. Today, it sits in City Hall, a reminder that beauty is in the eye of the beholder and ugly, nothing more than attitude. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. If peanut oil comes from peanuts and olive oil comes from olives, where does baby oil come from? It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Charles Osgood. That's Lily Tomlin in one of those classic sketches that show her great gift for comedy. It's a gift, by the way, that she isn't at all sure she has. Lee Cohen has our Sunday profile. Do you think you're naturally funny? Kind of. Not terribly funny. You don't think so, really? No, I, I think I'm somewhat funny. If you think you're only sort of kind of funny, what, what do you think your real talent is? Not much. No. <laughs> Come on. I guess I... No, I, I mean, you're right. That's a good question, because if I'm not funny, what is my talent? One ringy dingy. 
two ring-a-ding-ding. Is this the party to whom I am speaking? <laughs> Maybe the reason Lily Tomlin has such a hard time summing up her talent. My name is Edith Bad. Is because there's just so much of it. My little baby brother has a little soft spot on his head. <laughs> he must be very careful when you touch it. So I took a ballpoint pen and made an X so I wouldn't <laughs> It's no use. I'm going to go to the pen. For more than half a century, so. she's not only made people laugh. I'm going to lose my job. Violet, now just calm down. I'm no fool. I've killed the boss. You think they're not going to fire me for a thing like that? Now hush. She's made people think, too. One thing that I have no worry about is whether God exists. It has occurred to me that God has Alzheimer's and has forgotten we exist. <laughs> Lily Tomlin is a national treasure, celebrated at the Kennedy Center Honors back in 2014. And if there's any doubt just how funny she is, just ask President Obama. <laughs> Whatever she whispered to him at the White House that afternoon, gave him a case of the presidential giggles. What did you say to him that cracked him up so much? Do you remember? Well, you know, I, 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 uh, if I revealed it to you, it could throw the election. <laughs> she has so many awards. I don't come over here and caress these or anything. <laughs> she can be forgiven if a few of them are a little worse for the wear. My Grammy broke. Including her 1971 Grammy, for best comedy recording. <laughs> they're, they're not going to like that when they see this. It has that. to be soldered back on. Three Tonys, I don't know what those are for. <laughs> Her Tony Awards. This one's kind of rocking too. Weren't in the best shape either. I'm going to fix all these up. You'll see, I will fix them up. <laughs> the next time I see you. Only thing missing is an Oscar, but perhaps not for long. I need $600, 630. For what? I'm pregnant. At age 76, Tomlin's performance in the dramedy Grandma is getting some of the best reviews of her career. Who is he? A one-night stand? No, ew. He's kind of my boyfriend. Yeah. Yeah. Why didn't you use a condom? Or for humanity's sake, get a vasectomy. Well, who is this? It's my grandma. Tomlin plays a grouchy lesbian poet who spends one eventful day wheeling around in an old car. I need $500. You must not have a lot of friends trying to come up with enough cash to pay for her granddaughter's abortion. Now, that doesn't sound too funny, but it is. She's already pregnant. Grandma! Just saying, I see the hormones popping. <laughs> she says she felt right at home in the role. In fact, she wore her own clothes. And that unwieldy 55 Dodge? I got it like 40 years ago. <laughs> well, that's hers too. I mean, I just have to remember to press down hard on the brake. <laughs> it's fitting she's in love with the Detroit classic. After all, she grew up in the Motor City. She was born Mary Jean Tomlin. Lily was her mother's name. Her working-class neighborhood on the west side of Detroit became her comedic laboratory. The apartment house was like the center of my universe, and I used to go and visit from one apartment to the next just mad about the people, just wanted to hang out with them, wanted to do what they were doing. And they would say to me, uh, d d don't you think you should go home? It'd be nighttime, like 9.30 or something. And, uh, and I'd say, no, no, I told my mother I was coming home late tonight. And that was my spiel. She had a keen sense of observation, the tiniest gestures she could absorb and imitate. Take Audrey Hepburn. I read in a magazine that her eyes would move before her head would. Like if she would be talking, she would say, and she'd go. <laughs> as good as her characters were, they weren't the kind of thing most comedy clubs were looking for. Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. Starring Dan Rowan. But then came this. And Lily Tomlin. And Very few people, I don't think, can sort of pinpoint when they became famous. But you can. I can. To that. Ernestine. Ernestine was the culprit. And that one night... And she's been mad about it ever since. <laughs> oh, I'm calling Mr. Sinatra about an unpaid bill, and I was wondering what you're going to dooby-dooby-dooby-do about it. Ernestine, the lovable yet nosy telephone switchboard operator, made Tomlin a household name. We may be the only phone company in town, but we sock it to everybody. <laughs> I first thought she would be just a tough Bronx operator, 
And then as I worked on the stuff and improvised and worked on material, I thought my body just got tight like this. And her everything, her face got tight, and then she would snort. I guess because your face is that way, you start to talk yeah, nasal? Yeah, you talk that way. That's right. It's all, it all comes that way. And that's the truth. <laughs> then there was the particularly convincing five-year-old named Edith Ann. You like boys? <laughs> some of them I like them, some I do not. <laughs> but we soon learned she could tackle the serious, too. Her touching portrayal of a married gospel singer with two deaf children in Nashville earned her an Oscar nomination. Go in the water. I think, okay. What are you telling, Jimmy? Talk about swimming class. He's telling me about swimming class. Oh. Her first film role ever. Tomlin doesn't just play characters. She becomes them. In her acclaimed one-woman show, The Search for Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe, the other day, I forgot where I put my house keys. I looked everywhere, and then I remembered I don't have a house. <laughs> Tomlin seamlessly floats between a dozen or more strange and wonderful oddballs. All my life, I've wanted to be somebody, but I see now I should have been more specific. I wanted to uh, reflect the culture. They all had a, a voice. Mostly I wanted to do the humanity. Her character's humanity, she says, comes from her longtime creative partner and now wife, Jane Wagner, who has written most of the material that Tomlin has been performing for decades. Thank you all. And you guys have never been apart? No, we've never been apart, no. <laughs> it's been a long time, too. It's been, it'll be in March, it's be 45 years. In 1975, Tomlin says Time Magazine offered her the cover, as long as she agreed to come out publicly. She refused, not because she was hiding the fact she was gay. She just didn't like the ultimatum. But two years later, she made the cover of Time on her own terms, this time heralded as the new queen of comedy. Well, I don't know why I came here her longevity is a testament to her talent. Sir, can we get some cigarettes over here for crying out loud? She's currently co-starring in and co-producing the Netflix series Grace and Frankie okay. with Jane Fonda. Uh, uh, excuse me, are you in a coma? This is a place of business, right? Jane and I wanted to do a project where we had a platform for older women yeah. to talk about how discounted they are. and That was something you talked about for a while? Oh, yeah, Dis and dismissed. I mean, Jane wrote a book about it, in fact, mm -hmm. about women of a certain age, of a certain age, whatever that means. <laughs> it's the first time they've worked together since the 80s smash 9 to 5. I think there was something in that coffee. I think you're right. A comedy about three secretaries who hatch plots, both real and imagined, to wreak revenge on their sexist boss. But why? Why do you think? Because I'm a sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical bigot. Bingo. I'm so glad I did it. My God, it, it was uh, probably the only big grocer movie I've ever been in. Yeah. Like, big grocer, you know. I'm gonna be there because this is my granddaughter. Grandma may not be a big grocer, but 40 years after her first Oscar nod, Lily Tomlin's wondering if it just might happen again. Either way, she says, she won't be arriving in that old Dodge of hers. We used up most of her gas anyway. So much so, my producer called to find out just where we'd gone. Tell him we're going to go to Tijuana for the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> what a road trip that would be. Although with all of Lily Tomlin's imaginary friends, <laughs> you have to wonder if there'd be enough room in the car. to play it a new podcast network featuring radio and tv personalities talking business sports tech entertainment and more play it at play.it writer and actor michael ian black now with some thoughts about new year's resolutions now that the new year is upon us some of you might be feeling bad about already breaking the resolutions you made to yourselves only a couple of days ago 
Well, not me. Because this year, instead of getting down on myself or making promises to myself I can't keep, I'm taking a new tack. My resolutions for 2016 are all things that I'm already doing and will continue to do. For example, this year, I resolved to continue having pizza for dinner every Friday night. It's delicious, inexpensive, and the kids never go, pizza again. Instead, they go, pizza again? Plus, science has proven that pizza calories don't count because anything that tastes that good cannot make you fat. Also, I resolve to continue not jogging. Jogging is bad for the knees and other body parts as well. In fact, according to the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, nearly 70% of all runners can expect to become injured. 70%! Those are Ebola numbers! Running is to the body what demolition derby is to the automobile. So I am going to continue not doing that. In 2016, I resolved to spend a little too much on presents for my wife and not enough on retirement. Every year, my wife and I tell each other we're not going to get each other anything for Christmas. And every year, I end up buying her a bunch of stuff that she doesn't need but that makes her happy. Same with her birthday. And when they shut off our heat after we've retired because we can't afford to keep it on, at least we'll have plenty of fancy sweaters to wrap ourselves in. This year, I resolved to continue complaining about the New York Yankees. Everybody likes to complain about the Yankees, people who hate them and people like me who love them. Complaining about sports teams, that's one of the things that binds us together as Americans. The Yankees are the only team I follow, and I find complaining about the failures of other people keeps me from looking too closely at my own. Psychologists call this avoidance, and it's a terrific way to feel better about yourself without having to do any, you know, work. So yeah, improving yourself with resolutions, it's fine and everything, but knowing you are a flawed human being who eats a little too much pizza, doesn't exercise or save enough, but goes through the new year with a smile on your face, that's even better. Coming up, Mysteries of the Deep. A century-old mystery beneath the waves remains unsolved as we enter this new year. It involves the sinking of the ocean liner Lusitania during the First World War. Martha Teichner takes us back. Before air travel, the departure of a great liner was considered news. And Cunard's Lusitania was the greatest, the fastest, the most luxurious liner afloat on May 1st, 1915, as she prepared to leave New York City for Liverpool. It was news that the glamorous and rich Alfred Gwynne Vanderbilt was aboard, a member of the Just Missed It Club, people who had booked on the Titanic but canceled at the last minute. And it was news that in the morning papers that day, Germany, at war with Great Britain, published a warning that vessels flying the British flag or the flag of any of her allies were subject to attack as they passed through the waters off the British Isles. Even though it made no mention of the Lusitania, it was widely interpreted to be aimed at the ship. In fact. Eric Larson is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Dead Wake, about the Lusitania. The prevailing view was that the Lusitania was too big, too fast to ever be caught by a German submarine. And also there was this other idea that no German commander would try to sink it in the first place because it was a passenger line. But on May 7th at 2.10 p.m., in sight of the Irish coast, the Lusitania was struck by a German torpedo. Moments later, there was a second explosion. She sank in just 18 minutes. 1,198 of the nearly 2,000 people on the ship died, more than 120 of them Americans. Yeah, you can see, yeah, there she is rising in again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we've just come up over the wreck, and we're about to cross down to the other side now. The wreck is still down there, in 300 feet of water. Boat captain Carol O'Donoghue feels its presence. Oh, you still you to remember the, um, the tragedy of it all, really. Perfectly clear day, just like today. You see nothing. 
just water. All I could see was heads bobbing up and down. For a 1994 documentary, National Geographic interviewed survivors of the Lusitania. And it was like a half a circle of people moaning in the water. It was just a moan, a constant moan, and it gradually got less and less. Owen McGarry has dived the wreck nearly 50 times. When you're out here, do you have feelings for what's, what happened and what's down there? When I look up at the surface, I can see bodies raining down. You can see what it was like. You can hear the screams. The torpedo hit just behind the bridge on the starboard side. The ship tilted so far, so fast, only six lifeboats successfully made it into the water. Naval vessels in the area were ordered not to go near the site for fear they would be torpedoed too. So small boats made their way from Queenstown, now called Cove, 31 miles away. Some rescuers had to row the entire distance. My grandfather raced down to the office, was immediately involved in the rescue operation, uh, getting anybody who had a boat to go out. Courtney Murphy's grandfather, Jerome Murphy, the Cunard Line manager in Queenstown, took charge. He had to organize to commandeer rooms in the hotels where the people, the survivors, could be put up. In this family photo, the small boy in the front row is Courtney Murphy's father, who watched as the rescue boats returned. The bodies, as they came in, and the boats would have been in whatever clothes they had on them, and then they were covered in shrouds or in sheets. So your father the, remembered seeing He remembered seeing lines of bodies being laid out here along the, the, uh, along the footpath, and uh, that has an indelible memory for him. There were 764 survivors. Among the dead, Alfred Gwynne Vanderbilt. Today in Cove, there is a monument along the route the funeral procession took to the town cemetery, where the Lusitania dead were buried in mass graves. Mourners, as far as the eye could see, paying their respects. The pictures then and now, an eerie matchup. Was the sinking of the Lusitania just bad luck or something more sinister? Her captain, William Thomas Turner, believed she would have a British naval escort into port. None appeared. The British Navy didn't tell Captain Turner that U-20, the submarine that sunk her, was out there, something it knew because Germany's code books had been captured and then decoded at a top-secret facility called Room 40. One explanation is that Room 40 was absolutely top secret, and by God, they were going to keep it that way. But another explanation is that it would not hurt the British effort if the Lusitania were, were sunk and Americans were killed because it might draw America into the war. Winston Churchill oversaw Room 40. Head of the British Navy then, he was on record hoping for an incident that would drag the United States into the war. There's no smoking memo, if you will, that, that says that Churchill or the Admiralty deliberately put the Lusitania in harm's way. There is, however, a body of evidence that if you look at it, it is really damning. No one has ever been able to inspect the underside of the wreck, where the answer to the question what caused the second explosion may lie. These two items were recovered in 2011. This the Irish government has only allowed diver Owen McGarry to bring up artifacts that were lying on the sea floor or were in the bridge area. This is a multi-beam image of the wreck. It's a sonar beam that's sent from a ship that bounces off the sea floor. If you could imagine the whole ship is lying on our side. The starboard side is underneath all that. And sadly, because she's lying on the torpedo wound, we can't see exactly, you know, this is where all the carnage happened, where the torpedo strike and the second explosion. 
McGarry, for one, doesn't believe the accepted conclusion that the second explosion was caused by the rupture of the ship's main steam line. She was carrying small arms munitions. But were there other explosives aboard? I still think that there was, and she was carrying contraband. Um, something substantial caused that second explosion. And I do believe that there is somebody out there who does know. Or not, the Lusitania remains fodder for conspiracy theorists. It's the maritime grassy knoll. There are so many miraculous or nearly so things that happen that you know leaves room for people to say, well, well, that, that can't be it. I mean, here's the ship that sank in 18 minutes. It's just not possible, right? 100 years later, as time takes its toll, the truth only becomes more elusive. I'm Charles Osgood. Please join us again next Sunday morning. Till then, I'll see you on the radio. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.